Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. Dr. Joe Millions. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost to you. Where I want to call my home. So, stop for a second and listen. So, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today we have Dr. Stephen Adams, who Joe and I have both worked with for many years, and we're going to talk to him about the fascinating subject of cockwatching. So, Stephen, tell us about how you became to be a doctor interested in sexual health, and then we'll talk to you more about cockwatching. Thank you, Melissa. Um, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me on, on your podcast. I'm a GP by training, but I've been working in the field of sexual health for almost 30 years. And in my experience, talking to men about their sexual problems, as well as being a man with a penis myself, I've become aware that we spend quite a lot of our time observing function of our penis. And therefore, I, I coined the phrase cockwatching uh, as something that we spend a lot of our time doing. So, Joe, have you ever heard of the term cockwatching before? Not from any of our mutual patients, um, <laughs> but I guess maybe, maybe in association to birds, but not in the context <laughs> of this particular talk right now. So I'm all ears. Okay. So, Stephen, tell us, like, is this the term that you coined or does it have a history, this term? No, I think it's probably something I, I coined. I think um, my feeling is that men from a very young age as little boys are obsessed with our penises um and and you know anybody who's seen a, a young baby will notice that once they discover their penis from about six months of age they they very rarely leave it alone um and they're thinking about it and they're playing with it and they're looking at it um a very spend a large amount of their time doing it and so that's when it's all working and if it starts to not work then then they can get very very anxious about their function um so i think when it becomes more focused is through puberty um, where young men focus on their penis. They start to get erections. They start to worry about the size of their penis. They start to worry whether it's as big as their, as their um, peer group. Um, they get more anxious as they see what I call porn star penises. When they start to look at porn, they find all these, these actors with enormous penises and they get more and more focused on the function. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it is a thing. And I, interestingly enough, I've recently seen a picture, an ultrasound of an unborn baby who is playing with his penis then. So I thought it actually starts really young, doesn't it? Like, you know, fiddling around with these, these parts. 
Well, I suppose if babies can suck their thumb, then they probably can play with their penises. <laughs> so how does like this, this episode of watching your penis and becoming a little bit anxious about its function affect like young men? How does that show up in the sorts of patients that you see? Well, anxiety translates to um, autonomic function, which is, determines the how the penis works. So our penises are under control of two opposing nerves, the parasympathetic nerve and the sympathetic nerve. And the parasympathetic nerve is nicknamed rest and digest because when it's firing, the body is in relaxed mode, the blood is being pumped to our organs, our, our digestive organs, our bladder, bowel, and our genitals. And so that is the erectile nerve and that causes erectile function. Um, and then there's the other nerve, the sympathetic nerve, which is the uh, opposite nerve. So that's nickname is, is uh, fight and flight. And so that prepares our body to run or fight. And the last thing you need in that circumstance is an erection. So amongst other things, it will turn the erection off. And those two nerves are in a constant state of flux. So if you get anxious uh, for whatever reason, um, that will trigger the sympathetic nerve and will tend to turn off your erection. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, this whole cock-watching phenomena and being anxious about your penile function, getting your, your um, parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system competing with each other, that would be one of the main causes then of premature ejaculation. Yes, because uh, the other function of the sympathetic nerve is to trigger the ejaculatory reflex. So that can cause premature ejaculation. Uh, but it can also, in some people, cause failed ejaculation. It can cause the erection to go down. Uh, it can put people off sex. It can make young men avoidant of sex because they're scared of failing. So it's almost like the anxiety is at the root cause of almost all sexual problems in young men. And even in older men who have may have biological causes for their sexual dysfunction, it's almost impossible to have a problem with your sexual function without worrying about it. The worrying about it then makes it worse. Yeah, that's right. And Joe, do you have men in your practice talk to you about this problem of like anxiety becoming an issue when they notice that their sexual function isn't going as well? Yeah, I do. But I think it would be really helpful if um, Stephen, we could we'd break it down and explain what premature ejaculation actually is, because you know, in my readings, um, most most of the time it's uh, you know a lot a defined short time of maybe three minutes of we call intravaginal um, latency time. But guys are often concerned when it when their sexual function to ejaculation is only 10 minutes. But yeah, I'm just wondering if you could um, give our listeners a bit more of a, a medical definition of uh, premature ejaculation. Um, yes, thanks, Joe. It is a confusing subject and it spent a long time trying to make a definition of it. And the definition really relates to three aspects. Firstly, there's time and the average time from the insertion of the penis. And the studies have all been done with vaginas. So, so we're talking about the IVLT, which is designed as the, uh, sorry, determined as the speed of time, length of time between insertion of the penis in the vagina and ejaculation. And the worldwide mean for that is 5.4 minutes. So that's the average time it takes from, from um, penetration to ejaculation. Right. So okay. time, as in a problem, so premature, 90% of people with premature ejaculation will ejaculate in under 60 seconds or one minute. Um, right. 
less than two minutes, most people would define as a problem. Um, the other aspects of it, apart from the time, are control. So the man with premature ejaculation will not have control over his ejaculation. He'll be spending his time desperately trying not to ejaculate, um, but does so anyway. So it's, the, it's a rapid time, it's lack of control. And then the third aspect, which is really important, is bother. So premature ejaculation is not a bother if all you're hoping to achieve is to make somebody pregnant, because as long as you ejaculate in the vagina, then that's fine. And there are other couples who don't particularly enjoy vaginal intercourse, um, maybe because of pain or other issues. And again, they don't have bother. So the premature ejaculation is defined as ejaculation occurring sooner than um, the person wants. The person has lack of control over whether he ejaculates or not. Uh, he ejaculates sooner than he wants to. And thirdly, that it's causing bother to the person. No, oh, that's a great explanation. And so do you find then that a lot of guys will come in and think they have premature, premature ejaculation when they actually don't because they have an unrealistic expectation? Yes, absolutely. And I think the thing we understand with premature ejaculation is to a certain extent um, it is follows the normal distribution curve and there are some people who just do um, ejaculate very quickly and others who take a very long time and then most of us are in the, in the mean as we discussed um, but there are unrealistic expectations made again by porn or by reading and so on that a man should be able to be highly aroused but then last for as long as he wants um, and when you ask people, even when I'm giving lectures to other health professionals, you know, what the average time is, people really have no idea. You know, I usually go around the room and somebody says one minute and somebody says 10 minutes and somebody says three minutes. And you know, it's like penis size. People have very, very little actually idea of what is normal and what's not normal. Yeah, that is so true. And so, Joe, do you know what the normal penis size for a Caucasian male is? <laughs> oh, well. Is that something you Google on a regular basis? There is there is actually the penis map to refer to at any time. Um, I think it's 13.5 centimetres erect and 11.5 centimetres uh, flaccid. But mm. Should we ask Stephen? Stephen, you would correct me on that one. You're a penis owner. What is it? <laughs> yeah, penis, uh, well, I, I thought it was 12.5 centimetres. Anyway, it's a lot smaller than most people think. Um, and, and it does vary between different ethnic groups. Uh, I've got a lovely slide with with a sort of rotation of penis sizes around the world. I'm not sure how accurate it is, but it's very amusing. Um, but yes, I mean, the Afro-American penis is um, a centimetre or two longer and bigger. Uh, and, and the Asian, Indian, Asian penis is, is a centimetre or two smaller. So it definitely also relates to, to ethnicity. Um, but again, most boys and men think their penises are smaller than average. It just goes... Um, and even, you know, even those that think they've got a big penis worry about it. Um, and I remember at school, you know, there was a constant anxiety about being teased because your penis was either too big or too small, whether it was circumcised or not circumcised. There was a huge anxiety about comparing yourself to, to other uh, peers. But also because penises, um, you know, the showers and growers, they're what you have when you're in the showers or, or comparing in a non-erect state um, does relates very poorly to how it is when it's erect um, and so most penises actually average out a lot more and very much less when they're erect than when they're flaccid yeah exactly and I think that's a big thing I think often men and women don't realize that there's such thing as growers and showers so for any of you out there listening uh, 
grower is someone whose penis looks kind of, it well the definition is actually that it gets great grows in size length greater than four centimeters when erect um and a and a shower their penis size doesn't alter any more than within that four centimeters for, uh, from flaccid to hard so you can't actually assume when you see someone that they have a small or large penis until you actually see it in the erect state. That's right, mm. isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, going back to the thing about premature ejaculation, let's suppose, you know, you're, you, you have inherited or you, you're genetically primed to have a certain um, length of time. But then, as I say, that's when the cock watching, that's when the anxiety kicks in, because if you've had a couple of occasions when it's happened quicker than you'd hoped, or even that somebody said to you, oh, couldn't you last any longer? Then you start to get anxious. And then that anxiety activates that sympathetic nerve, which makes your slight problem a lot worse. And it's the same thing with erectile dysfunction. You know, you may have had a couple of failures, which in actual fact would be quite expected, maybe because you were nervous or maybe because you drunk too much alcohol and you have a couple of failures, but then you start to worry about it and then you do the cock watching thing and then that activates your sympathetic nerve and then the failures become more and more entrenched. Right. So, Joe, you brought up the – oh, Joe's got a question. Go for it. Yeah, so, Stephen, we have two different types of premature ejaculation. There's acquired and then there's lifelong. And so often when you refer patients to me, they're usually the acquired patients because they're the ones that I can often do physical treatments with, such as pelvic floor training or down training. Could you tell us a little bit about the lifelong uh, presentation and how, how you gently treat that? Okay, well, lifelong or primary means that you have inherited, as I say, that the tendency to be quick. And that actually does run in families, but it's not something that men tend to discuss with their, their brothers or fathers or uncles. <laughs> um, but there have been genetic studies, and apparently there's some, some I mean, there's some village in, in um, Denmark or somewhere where everybody has premature ejaculation. Um, so there are just genetic um, tendencies. Now, when I see young men, um, let's say in their, in their early 20s often, they may have had a limited number of sexual experiences. And um, so when you first see them and they come or referred or, or, or come themselves um, complaining of premature ejaculation, you actually don't know whether they're primary or secondary. The primary is somebody who's tried out with several different partners over long partnerships or short partnerships, um, and the problem has never gone away. You might have somebody who's been, let's say, in a long-term marriage relationship for 20 years, and they still have just as little control as when they first got together. Whereas the secondary or acquired type tends to be a new relationship, bit of anxiety, bit of stress. Um, and, and it's a problem, and then they settle down, and they relax, and they're comfortable with each other, um, and, and the problem gradually recedes and goes away. So when I first see people, um, I don't know, because they've never gained control. And so sometimes you'll treat them either with medication, or they'll um, treat them with your pelvic floor exercises, or sometimes they've, they've um, done um, self-exercises in terms of relaxation and so on, or maybe they've just spent time with their partner and become comfortable, the problem goes away, well, you know you're dealing with the, the secondary type. Whereas the other type, you you know, you stop the treatment and they go straight back to square one again and they they have had this problem and they need to have long-term treatment, often with medication. And with the difference between primary and acquired as well, there's a difference, isn't there, whether or not they have premature ejaculation when they're masturbating or just whether they're with a the partner? Um, yes, no. 
most most problem with premature ejaculation is specifically penetration sex. Yeah. The majority of patients who suffer from premature ejaculation actually don't have a problem either with masturbation or even curiously with partner masturbation or even oral sex. They'll often have reasonably good control in that circumstance, but the moment they try having penetration sex, that's when they have the problem. Right, okay. And so that brings us back to this whole cock-watching. Cock, cock can't even say it. It's like stuck on my tongue. That's a really bad pun, isn't it? I was going Sorry, to say crotch <laughs> So the word cocksure, that does this explain how this obviously has something to do with the word cockwatching, doesn't it? Yes, the word cocksure actually derives from Chaucer. And there's some debate about um, whether he's referring to the cockerel and the cock being the cock and and us being confident because we're strutting our stuff like cockerels or cocksure meaning sure of your cock and we're strutting our stuff because we're confident in in the size and ability of of our cocks, of our penises. So... If you describe a man as being cocksure, you imagine a man who has good self-esteem, who's strutting his stuff, he's confident, um, he's, he's, um, if you like, striving towards being the alpha male. And it's interesting because that is also rated as an attractive quality by partners, particularly in heterosexual relationships. If you ask um, women what they find attractive in a partner, Self-confidence always comes very high on the list of, of qualities that is found to be attractive in, in, in acquiring a mate, either for sexual or for, or for long-term partnership. So self-esteem is crucially important um, in maintaining. And also, both in men and women, when we look at, at your sexual function, having good self-esteem If you feel comfortable with yourself, then you're going to feel confident in sharing yourself with another person. Whereas if you have low self-esteem, maybe social anxiety, you're anxious, that's going to impair your function. And it also impairs your your self-confidence going into any sort of relationship. And that then makes things even worse when it comes to your anxiety affecting your sexual function. Mm, So it's kind of a spiralling situation, isn't it? Like one thing happens and then it just keeps on going from there. So how do you stop it? Like how do do we help people who have got this problem? Well, one of the things I think men do when they have this issue is they monitor themselves and what's going on too much. I sometimes describe that it's like having a CCTV in in the bedroom. These men are worrying constantly, you know, am I hard? Am I going to stay hard? Am I going to get hard? What is my partner thinking? Um, Do they want me to do this? Do they want me to do that? Am I going to come? Am I not going to come? Is my partner going to come? Are they not going to come? And so they're, they're up in their CCTV monitoring what's going on as opposed to shutting down their overthinking, overanalyzing a brain and being more down and earthy and in their body and present in the moment. And so how do you, what do you suggest men do to, to be more down and earthy and present in the moment? I know there's something you taught me that I often use and tell patients. So do you want to tell us about that? I'm not sure I know what you're referring to. But, <laughs> but for I'm me, wondering too. <laughs> I've taught you, hopefully I've taught you lots of things. You have. This is just one of them that I've always used. Uh, well, what I, what I find is that the person needs to be we, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, circumstances nowadays where we talk about mindfulness. You know, we talk about mindfulness in counselling, mindfulness in yoga, mindfulness in breathing. But I think mindfulness in sexual function is also a thing. You need to be aware of the sensations, enjoy the sensations, and and get 
get into it in in a more earthy, passionate way, as opposed to in a more analytical, um, planning, um, head thinking type of way. Yeah, I think there's something that you told me once, which I use tell patients often, which is to really find one sensation when they're intimate to concentrate on. So it might be yeah. the touch you know, the feel of the skin or the look mm. of something and really concentrate on that one feeling and that one movement and that one sensation to take themselves. Because, you know, I think the example you used for me that I always remember is you said if you tell me not to think of a pink elephant, that's all I'm going to think about. Yeah. But if you tell someone, if you actually try and think about, think of something and concentrate on it, it takes your mind away from what may or may not happen. Is that? Yeah, yeah I think. For, for example, one of my sayings for men and women is, is the harder you try and have an orgasm, the more difficult it is. And it's a good example of trying not to think about what you're trying to do or not do, but more concentrating on the feeling of your partner's hand or the feeling of the warmth or, or the wetness or the, or the, you know, the sensations in your body. So that's what I mean. You're becoming mindful of the sexual experience. Um, you're concentrating on sometimes we do talk about mindful breathing as well because that helps stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system and we start often by connecting couples doing simple things that are the simple things like massage or sensual touching or stroking and just trying to get the person constantly to bring their head back to what's going on between the two of them as opposed to this whole sort of monitoring of what is about to happen or not happen yeah have you got any have you got anything you're thinking there Georgia? Yeah. well i've actually got a number of patients that Stephen refers to me that actually have um like post ejaculatory pain and that's a really big um part of what i do daily in my clinic because we get this whole situation where guys are fearful about the pain that might come on following their sexual um activity and and that that then creates this whole other scenario of you know anxiety manifestations and so i'm constantly getting them to focus mindfully on gently breathing or changing positions because I talk about the work of the pelvic floor uh, actually reaching points of fatigue at times if they have weak pelvic floor or pelvic floors that are a bit what we call hypertonic or naturally stiff and overactive and uh, yeah I'm, I'm really amazed how much my yoga training actually comes into trying to help um, the, the thoughts uh, ease down and just to really really try and stop that build up of tension um initially that that will make them fearful of even wanting to engage in sexual activity and quite often it's just a case of once um there has been in that ejaculation um point to simply just um change positions resting back and just starting to do a little bit of gentle belly breathing to more or less let the pelvic floor muscles relax and open up um, just dilating the blood vessel areas again rather than moving into a cramping um, type scenario. And once there's been one or two more successful um, uh, sexual um, intercourse situations, then then generally the problem's gone as well. Well, I think, uh, Joe, you mentioned a very important thing, which is what happens in this situation is, and it applies just as much to the pain situation, is what's called hypervigilance. So hypervigilance mm. is like a, an SAS patrolman on patrol, constantly looking out and waiting for something bad to happen. And it, it, it is translated in your body that everything is tensed up and ready for the fight and flight. So you're preparing for the worst. You're preparing for something to go wrong. You're preparing for pain. You're preparing for failure. You're preparing to get the hell out of there. 
and and so that is not conducive with satisfactory sexual function that is that is conducive with dealing with a threat now if you've been under that situation for a long period of time maybe you suffer from an anxiety disorder maybe you've had a previous traumatic experience maybe you've had child sexual abuse maybe you experienced chronic pain then it's very hard to turn that status off because that is your normal. You spend most of your life in that state of hypervigilance. And so in therapy, in, in yoga, in exercise, um, we try to turn that off. Sometimes people need medication to help. Sometimes things like yoga and meditation could be fantastic. Um, exercise. Um, massage, all sorts of things like this, all designed to try and downregulate this upregulated hypervigilant state. Right. So, if a guy is suffering from, you know, anxiety related to his function, and you know, is watching his cock, and we want he wants to be more cocksure, what what would the the basic things that you know what would be the best plan for him to take? Well, I think from for me, it's about, first of all, making a diagnosis. So does somebody suffer from a medical or psychiatric condition such as social anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder that needs specific treatment? Mm -hmm. Secondly, you need to find what type of um, process helps them downregulate that system. So whether it's through physiotherapy, through pelvic floor work, whether it's through yoga, exercise, meditation, or a combination of the above. So I think mindfulness scares people because they think, oh, I haven't got time to spend an hour a day, you know, going yawn and doing focus. yoga um, <laughs> or meditation. So you have to find the right way for the person. And then also you spend a lot of time unlearning people of misapprehension they've had poor education the, the sexual education is very poor uh, nowadays they may have got most of their sex education from porn films which is obviously not a very accurate uh, um, way of finding things they may have had been criticized by a previous partner um, they may, may have all sorts of misinformation that needs to be unlearned so that they can then start to feel comfortable with themselves and with their own function they've almost had got to relearn how to be themselves and how to share themselves with, with a sexual partner. And so I think the most important point to take away here is that, you know, this is something that guys can actually deal with and they don't, you know, just need to put up with it. I think also we, we have a lot of women that listen. If you're a woman who is with a guy who you think might be suffering from these issues, what, what can we do to make guys more, feel more comfortable about it? Well, it's a funny thing here um, when I'm seeing couples for, for counselling. I often say that men are like children and dogs. We, uh, we respond best to training by positive reinforcement, <laughs> by, by uh, being told good boy and given treats as opposed to by being criticised and told off and told we're useless. And so I know it's pathetic to admit it, but we definitely respond that if we're doing the right thing and we're told that was really lovely when you did that, you know, I really appreciated that when you did that, do more of that, that feels really good. That's going to be music to our ears and say, yeah, I can do that. That's fantastic. Whereas if we're told, you know, you're a useless lover, we go away with our tail between our legs and our mm. cock shrivels and um, we are certainly not, not cocksure. Yeah, so I think, you know, the message there is is that if 
you know, maybe if our partner does something we're not particularly liking, but they do something else we do really like, then we focus on the, what they like and t- what we like and tell them how great that is rather than focusing on what we don't like. Yeah, is that right? That's absolutely right. Another good tip in relationship counselling um, is, co- is called the uh, the soft no or the no sandwich. So if there is a criticism, if there's something that you don't like about the way we relate to you, perhaps in our sexual um, um, encounters, you fit it in with two good things. So you say, you know, I really love it when you do so-and-so. And then you say, not so sure about the, the number two thing, but so-and-so is really, really good. So you do the nice positive thing. I, I love this and this is lovely. Um, don't like that but let's do this because that's my favorite. So again, wrapping up any sort of criticism or, or, um, or negative uh, comment uh, in a couple of positives. Mm-hmm. Putting it in oh, a red really bow. Lovely. Have you got any yeah, final questions or anything you'd like to ask, Jojo? Yes, I'd like to discuss the older man now. So the older man who encounters um, erectile dysfunction changes. And so uh, he or his partner might start to notice that he's not as hard for as long or it's... Um, more and more difficult to um, even get to an erection. Um, well, there might be penile deformity changes, uh, just as the ageing consequence. So what, what are the sort of conditions, Stephen, that are common to, say, a man in, through his 50s and beyond? Well, Joe, almost all, all um, sexual problems get commoner as you get older, with the exception of premature ejaculation. Um, and... I suppose the most important thing is to give permission for men to be sexual into older age. Men have this idea that when things start to go wrong, um, it's Mother Nature or God or whoever you believe in telling you, tapping on the shoulder and saying it's time to hang up your boots. And um, they're amazed when I tell them that my oldest patient that I was actively treating was 96 um, and and that there's no reason at all why you, you can't go on enjoying a sexual relationship well into your retirement years and, and into your older age ages. So even men in their late 50s and 60s will say, oh, I'm probably, I'm probably making a fuss about nothing. You know, my erectile dysfunction is probably just my age and, and I shouldn't be making a fuss about it. So giving people permission to, to accept that sex is important even in, in post-retirement years. Um, and in terms of specific things, I think it's just also reassuring that the vast majority of our sexual problems that we come across uh, are treatable. Um, and therefore, not only do they not to feel embarrassed to complain about it, but that the, they put their hand up and saying, I'm having a problem, though there is something we can actually do about it. So and the I simple thing would be and don't talk about their sexual problems because they're embarrassed and they just think, you know, but when we just try and that's what we're trying to do here is get guys and their partners to talk about it and make sure this is normal and and we can help. What were you going to say then, Jo? Uh, just that um, it's really good, I guess, for guys to understand that it is normal to have um, changes as they get older and it's not necessarily um, the end of everything. And so it can start off as, as simple as um, just some medication like say, Cialis or Viagra, which, you know, is often going to give someone a little bit of a confidence boost. Uh, and I always think it's important to know family history of things like heart disease. Have you got any comments on that, Stephen? Well, when I'm teaching other doctors, one of the most important things is, is that a sexual problem developing in a man or a woman 
can be a very important symptom indicating an underlying medical problem. And so not only should they not be embarrassed to own up to, for example, having erection problems, but that it might be an important medical symptom and that they may need to have it assessed because it may be the first sign of circulation problems, heart disease, um, and various other conditions, diabetes, and so on and so forth. So it is important. It's important as an individual level, but it's important as a medical symptom. Yeah, because I've always um, liked to use the, the phrase, your hard health and your heart health you know, have a, a strong correlation. And there's the um, simple test of the coronary calcium score that I often encourage patients that I work with with Melissa to um, go and have that checked because it's, I think it's as little as $150 now, but it can give um, a, a nice sort of easy glance of, as to what's actually potentially happening. And then there's been several patients that we've managed to spare from having imminent heart attacks um, because they've they've raised that question in, in our um, assessment realised, you know, might be might be worthwhile investigating something really simple. So I think our takeaway messages today are for all of the partners of men who might not be as cocksure as they used to be, we need to encourage them, give them positive reinforcement and remember to pat them on the head like our dog. And no, I'm just joking. Just be nice to your men and tell them the positive things, not the negatives. We all like to hear that. And that Scratch you, our tummies. Scratch your tummy? Okay. <laughs> I always thought they wanted something else scratched, not the tummy, but this is a whole new revelation. Um, <laughs> and there is help out there. So you can definitely go and get help. And where would we? Where would a guy who would like to come and talk to you, Stephen, where would they find you? Well, I, I work in my practice at West End Medical and have a, um, a clinic there called Integrated Sexual Health. But I think the first port of call for men with these conditions should be their GPs because they need to be assessed by somebody. And if their GPs are not comfortable um, in, in doing this or, or, or they feel that they, they don't want to share with their GP, then they can come to a doctor who deals with sexual health problems such as myself. Have you got anything you'd like to say to wind up, Jojo? No, but just on reflection, because I, I know a lot of patients um, who listen to our podcast are prostate cancer patients have had treatments for prostate cancer. I actually did a patient just a couple of days ago, and he was 81. And although um, I had discussed the issue of the uh, rectal dysfunction um, prior to his surgery, no one else had actually raised it with him. None of the doctors or urologists had been working with him. And um, I actually said, oh, you're 81. Would you like to know a little bit more? Do you want to work on the rehab side of it? Because oh, I'd absolutely love to. And I've, I've been so waiting for someone to, you know, broach that topic with me again. And it just occurred to me that potentially just because he was that little bit older, that we'd been a little bit um, dismissive that perhaps that wasn't um, on his agenda anymore. But I always say from what I've learned working with guys, that so long as a man has a heartbeat, his desire to have things work, should the opportunity arise, it is probably um, something he would, would choose to have. Yeah, that's a great point. So if there's any health professionals out there listening, and I know we've got quite a lot, then, you know, bring it up with your patients and don't just think because they're over the age of 50, 60 or 70 or whatever it is that they're not still interested because as um, Stephen has said and Joe's brought up that there's lots of guys well into their 80s and 90s and women who are still interested in being intimate. Yeah, and it is sad that when some patients come to see me and they have told, been told by their GPs they shouldn't be worrying about it at their age. And I get really upset yeah, when I hear yeah. that. That's a really, really mm. ageist thing. And we need to um, stop that straight away. There is no age at which you are supposed to give up enjoying sexuality. Mm -hmm. So, well, thank you so much, Stephen, for talking to us today. And 
Jojo, it's been lovely. We've got Joe in on Zoom today because we've just had the announcement again that we're not all supposed to be going out and about in Perth. If anyone's listening somewhere else. Sorry, COVID restrictions. <laughs> well, yeah, we all might have to stay home again for a few days by the sounds of things. So I hope you all enjoy this week's episode and thank you very much for listening. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback, and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Those dread dark days I learned to value each and every one Of those warm afternoons Boys on their bikes Shooting stones at each other through the trees We tried to deny the going down of the sun Having too much fun